Today's Mother's Day. And so I was thinking about Mother's Day, and we're going to get to the question in a minute, but I was thinking about um, mom-isms. Do you know what mom-isms are? Things that moms say again and again and again, right? If many of you weren't sitting next to your mom, I'd have you tell the person next to you what a particular mom is for your mom, but that might get dangerous, all right? And so I thought of some, I read some, looked online, some people had some, and so here are some famous momisms like, um, I don't care who started it, all right? Hey, y'all be careful. Put your shoes on. Find your shoes. I don't care. We've got to go. Get your shoes on. Those usually go together. Get in the car. Shut the door. Turn off the lights. Just one bite. Did you even hear a word I said? Hitting a little too close to home for some people around here. One day you will thank me for this. Get off your phone. If all of your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump off as well? Now let me ask you, how many of you have ever heard those from your mom? Something. How many of you have ever said those? Now I saw some hands go down for some ladies that I know have said some of those. All right. Right. I, I saw this week online there was a video for a I'm becoming my mom support group. Where people that said, I will never be my mom, are suddenly becoming their mom. All right, I told you, it could get a little dangerous if you're sitting next to her. Well, one of the things is, in churches, sometimes in churches, just like moms, when moms say things over and over again, sometimes kids, whether they should or should not, should not, sometimes tune out. Because they hear the same thing again and again. Well, sometimes in church, we have sayings that we say so much that we don't really know what we, if what we mean is being conveyed, if people understand what we're saying, and we just say them, and you ask the question, okay, so what does that mean? And because we are a Baptist church, one of those sayings for us is the saying, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Is a saying that we say, and we talk about it in Baptist church, so you believe once saved, always saved? Yep, believe in that. Sometimes we say it without quite understanding what it means. And one of the things that always happens when I do these kind of question times, when I, we've done this three or four times since I've been here where I've let you ask questions and then I do a series of messages based on that. One of the questions that always gets asked several times revolves around whether or not we can trust once saved, always saved. Now it may be framed differently, it may be said differently, but the question is, Once you're a believer in Jesus, are you always a believer? So sometimes it'll be asked this way. It'll be asked like somebody will say to us like right in there. Hey, um, I have a child or what if or um, what say like usually it's hypothetical situations. What if I have a child who at the age of nine said they were saved, walked down the aisle, got baptized, became a member of the church and then. 15 years later is saying they don't really believe any of that. Or they're not doing anything that I think a Christian ought to do. They're not going to church. They're not talking about Jesus. They're not living their life in a way that Christians ought to. They're making choices that are terrible. They've moved out. And since they moved out, I don't know that they've ever been to church. I don't know that they've ever talked about Jesus. I don't know they've ever read their Bible. I don't know they've ever done anything. If they were saved at nine, are they still saved? It's the question that gets asked. So what do we do with that? 
Once saved, always saved. Is that what we believe? What do we mean by that? What is it? What, when you dig down deeper then, what about that scenario? What's going on with that? And so here's what I want to do today. I want to give you two statements that I firmly believe from Scripture. Two statements that I have no doubts about based on my study of Scripture. And then I want to answer a question on the back end of that that may help with that discussion. Because I think what is really happening when those questions are asked is that you're not really, you are asking a theological question, but most people are having a very practical reality play out in their life that they're wondering about. With someone they care about or with their own life. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you two statements. And the first is this, and I believe this with all my heart, and I'm going to show it to you in Scripture. If you have been saved by Jesus, your salvation is secure forever. If you have been saved by God, your salvation is secure forever. I don't just say that because that's what I'm told to say because I'm a Baptist pastor. I believe that the scripture teaches that. Let me show you three places and there are other places. I just want to show you three. The first comes from John chapter 10. And this is where Jesus is comparing himself to a shepherd. He has said he is the good shepherd, that he takes care of his sheep. And then he says this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The father and I are one. Now to the Pharisees and the people that were standing around that heard this statement, that last statement would have been the one that would have sent them into complete shock, that would have sent them into anger, where he claimed to be one with God. But for us and for today, what I want to focus on is what happens before that here at the beginning of this passage that we looked at. Where he says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life. What we have there is the basic definition of what salvation looks like according to the Bible. Jesus calls, Jesus asks, Jesus offers. He calls out to us, they hear my voice, he speaks to us, he initiates We respond, we accept, we follow, and when we do, he saves. The basic outline of salvation is Jesus calls, we respond, he saves. Now in that equation, it may seem like that's two-thirds Jesus, one-third us. But the reality is, in the actual acting of the salvation, that's about 99.99999% Jesus and .00001% us. Now I don't know if I got those exact numbers right, but you get the idea. Right? I had a professor in college that used to say, if you knew how little you had to do with your own salvation, it would be shocking to you. Now, the reason that's important and good news is because it's not dependent upon us to keep our salvation. If we didn't earn it, we can't lose it. What he says here is, That when I save them, I hold on to them and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, when I, when I had little, little kids, now I've still got little kids. By the way, it's a little, it's a little, um, emotional moment for me today because that's the last time we will have a preschooler sing with the preschool choir. I've been your pastor now for 11 years and in 11 years there's always been a Larson in the preschool choir. So what happens when you have four, right? 
But that is the last moment Ava sang today. That's her last one. She moves into children's ministry next year. Now, I asked the first service. I said, now, do you all know what that means? Somebody says you're getting old, and I agreed with that. Somebody else says it's time for another. I said no. All right. Okay, we're good. All right, we're good with that. We're, we're, it's emotional, but we're good with the transition. All right. But now, and, and so when Ava and Maddie, especially, were a little younger, um, we would play this game where you do the hide, you know, whatever you got an object in your hide in your hand, which hand, which hand, and they pick the hand. Oh, it's not there. And if they pick the hand that it was, I wouldn't let them open it. Like I'd stick out, I'm sorry, it won't open. And they would take their fingers, their little bitty fingers, and they would try to pry it open, right? They'd pull on it. They'd get both hands and try to pull. They'd call their sisters in. Maddie, come help me get daddy's hand open, right? But no matter how hard they tried, they weren't going to open it up because I was so much stronger than they were. Now, I don't play that game with Eli anymore because he could break my hand probably, right? Maybe not break it, but you could get it open, all right? I didn't want to get the big head sitting there for a minute. The point is, the picture is similar to that. God says, when, when I save you, I stick you in the palm of my hand. I close my hand and only someone more powerful than me can open it. No one. Now, now for, for 11 years, I've told you that that all means all. No one means no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because my father Gave them to me and he's stronger and he and I are the same. Nobody's going to do it. Now, in case we missed that, the next one comes from Romans. And he says in Romans chapter eight, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come. He's covering everything he possibly did. No powers, nor height, nor depth. And then he says, in case I've missed anything, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you have been saved, you are forever bound to Jesus. Nothing can separate you. Or another way, this is in Philippians, he says that I am confident of this, sure of this. That he, he is God, who started a good work in you, will carry it on. There is no doubt in his statement from Paul. Will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. All three of those verses, there are many others. There's, there's some verses that talk about us being sealed. Sealed there means to be completely put away, to be completely settled. He says that nobody can take you away. Sometimes people say, yeah, yeah, pastor, but what if I go, what if I get really bad? Like, like, what if I do really bad stuff? And here's what I'll tell you. We'll talk about in a minute about kind of the other side of this and some questions you may need to ask. But let me just say this. If you have been saved by Jesus, there is nothing that you can do that is more powerful than the cross that has already saved you. Because if you could undo the salvation, then you are the one that could go in and grab God's fingers and pull them open and release yourself. And you, my friend, are not powerful enough to do that. So the first question is, if you're saved, are you saved forever? And my answer is yes. The second statement that I want to make, and it's real clear, I think, in Scripture as well. He doesn't want you, Jesus doesn't want you to live with uncertainty. He wants you to live with the certainty of who you are in Christ Jesus. He wants you to live with the certainty of being a follower of Jesus. He doesn't want you to live in doubt. 
Now, there are a couple of places that he tells us this in the book of John. And we're going to end up in 1 John. Now, a lot of what we're talking about today is written by John. John was his beloved disciple. He was the one that wrote a lot about assurance and salvation. But in John chapter 15, he tells them that he loves them just as the Father has loved me. So as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. It's the same. God's love for me is the same as my love for you. Remain in that. Stay in that. Trust in that. Depend on that. Be certain of that. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. We're talking about a love that cannot be explained. We're talking about a love that none of us have experienced outside of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're talking about a love that none of us can give because it's a heavenly, perfect love. In fact, in Scripture, Jesus says that the love God has for us is so amazing because it shows us what the love of the Father and the Son is, and it is Always searching, relentless, passionately pursuing us to forgive us and to show us the way that we ought to live. Jesus didn't want his disciples to be in doubt. And so right before he left and was crucified, he gathered them together and he told them in John chapter 14, just a chapter before this. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going to go away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. He doesn't want us to live in doubt. He tells his disciples, listen, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place and I'm going to come back. Now, one of the things that you may not know, because it's not evident in this passage, is that he is using language that was very familiar to a Jewish audience of that day. Because what would happen when somebody would get married, before they got married, they got engaged. And as they were in the engagement process, the husband would look at this fiance, who was to be his wife, the groom, and he would say to her, listen. And there are Jewish writings where almost this exact wording is used. He says, I'm going to leave for a little bit, but don't worry. I'm just leaving to go prepare a place for us at my father's house. I'm going to build you a room. I'm going to build us a place to live. And when that place is finished, when it's ready, I'm going to come back and get you and take you to be with me there. It was a sign of assurance for them. He doesn't want us to live in doubt. And so the question becomes, when people doubt, or when you have questions about loved ones, or you have questions about your own life, the question becomes, so how do you know? If you're saved, always saved, and God doesn't want you to live in doubt, then how do you know? How can I know? And that's where First John chapter 5 comes in. We're going to look at it briefly today, but it gives us two ways that you can know that you know that you're saved. When I was growing up, the big church in our area was a church um, uh, called Bellevue Baptist Church. And Dr. Adrian Rogers was the pastor there. And Adrian Rogers, if you've ever, he's been on the radio and all kinds of stuff. But Bellevue is one of the first mega churches around. And so when I would go every Christmas, we would take trips from my church in Dyersburg down to Bellevue to see the singing Christmas tree. All right. And it's a huge thing. I mean, the church of 10,000, 15,000 Christmas tree, huge, all the way up the ceiling, much bigger than this huge tree. There was unbelievable singers. They do a production. They tell the, the story of Christ's birth. But towards the end, they would always do it is finished. The old gospel song, it is finished. And as they did it, everything in the place would go dark, including the tree. And then they would light up a red cross right in the middle. 
And then Adrian Rogers would step out, give an invitation, give the gospel. And I'll never forget. He would say, and I can't say it like Adrian because he has like the typical preacher voice, like deep preacher voice. He would say, I want you to know the night that you can know that you know that you know that you know that you're saved. And I believe that for those of you in this room who are believers in Jesus Christ, he wants you to know that you know that you know that you're saved. I also believe for those of you that aren't believers in Jesus Christ, he wants you to know that as well. And have the option to make a decision. First John chapter five says this. The one who believes those that are believers, those that are followers of Jesus Christ and the son of God has this testimony within himself. He says there's something within you that gives testimony to it. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about the son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. Now, you may not see it right away, but I want to show you two things in this passage that give us evidence that we are a believer. And I want you to know this, that scripture says that if you are saved by Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, your life will testify to that fact. It will show forth that that is true. Now, I know that's another one of those church words that if you're in church and somebody says, let's testify that people get a very churchy thought process with it, right? I grew up going to small country churches. My, my grandparents were part of one. And if you walked into Southside Baptist Church outside of Dyersburg, Tennessee, and the pastor said, testify, somebody would hop up and start talking. Right? They have testimony nights. Testify. Some of you have flashbacks and started to do it right now. All right? But we use that phrase somewhere else. Right? Besides church. Where do we use Testify. In courts, right? In a court, testimony simply is this. You tell what you know about the situation, about the task. You tell what experiences you had. You give your eyewitness testimony. And what he says is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your life is going to show that. It's going to demonstrate that in two particular ways. You're going to testify to the reality. And those two ways are in what you believe and how you behave. He says, first of all, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and the life is in his son. You want to know if you're saved? The first question you ask is, do you truly believe that the only possible way for salvation is through Jesus? See, the Bible teaches us and the reality is that no matter how good we think we are, no matter how many righteous deeds we have done, we are incapable of getting salvation for ourselves. That our righteous deeds, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags before God. Our best efforts are completely dirty before God. The picture the Old Testament gives us of how clean we are before God is seen in Zechariah chapter 3. It's this unbelievable picture about the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement came once a year for the people of God when the high priest would walk in to the Holy of Holies. Now the temple had the outer court, it had the, uh, the, it had a, the, the inner court of place, had the holy place, and then had the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where God's presence was to reside. The Ark of the Covenant was there. And one time a year, one man was allowed to go into that place and give a sacrifice for God's people. He was to represent God's people. He was to represent everything that was right about them. He was to represent their righteousness. He was to represent everything good about them. And scripture even kind of gives us this idea that the priest had to prepare himself 
beyond what you can imagine. He was separated for a week from everybody else because they didn't want him unclean in that place. He didn't sleep the night before. He stayed up the whole night reading the Bible, praying to God, getting himself ready for that moment. Because in that moment, he had to be completely clean, both outwardly and inwardly. He would arrive at the day of atonement. He would walk out. They would have a screen up between him and the people. And there would have been thousands of people there to watch this event. And as he was there, he would bathe, put on brand new clothes, walk into the Holy of Holies, give a sacrifice offering for his personal sin because he had to wipe that away first. He would leave the room. He would go back out. He would bathe again, put on a brand new white cloth, walk back in, make a sacrifice for the priest. Walk back out, bathe again. Now, mind you, this is in front of the entire nation with a little screen between them. But they are there to make sure our representative is going to be clean. He is our righteousness. He is our right one. He would clean himself completely. He would walk back in. He would offer sacrifice for the people. And in the book of Zechariah, they give this picture. That what happens is, as he's getting ready to go into the temple... This, pro, this high priest named Joshua gets ready to walk in to make the sacrifice. And instead of wearing white clothes that are completely pure, instead of that bathing that would make him clean, instead of being the pure representative of God, it says that he was getting ready to walk in. And it's a gross picture. And he is covered in animal excrement. Poop. For those that don't know what excrement is. And it says... That Zechariah starts to weep because he realizes that even their best is filthy before God. And the first step to whether or not you know you're saved is what do you believe about your own sin and your own righteousness and your own ability to make it work? Zechariah gives a prophecy from God when he says, Clean yourself off, high priest, because I am going to send one in a day that will wipe away sin completely from the earth. Now, here's the cool thing about that story. Joshua in Hebrew is the same word as Jesus in Greek. And Jesus would come and wipe it away. See, the gospel is not just that we are so bad we can't do anything about ourselves. It's that Jesus Christ paid the sin that we should have when he died on the cross. And that all we have to do is accept the offer of forgiveness from Jesus who paid our price for our sin on the cross. The first thing that you ask yourself, am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? Am I really saved? Is A, do I believe? And then the second thing scripture says, and John will tell us this. He says, if you are a follower of Christ, you will follow his commands. You will live a life that is dedicated to him. Is my life representative of what a life that follows Jesus ought to be? I'm not talking perfection. I'm just talking the pattern of your life is that you follow Jesus. What does it mean for you? Is that who you are? Is that what you do? Is that what life looks like for you? People ask me the question, okay? So what about my son or my daughter or what about my life? People come in and ask me, what about my grandchild's life? What about my friend's life that said when they were nine years old, they believed, they said they believed Jesus. They walked down an aisle, they got baptized, but there's been no evidence since then. 
And in those instances, the questions that I asked them to ask themselves is not, did they lose their salvation? The real question there is, were they ever saved in the first place? Did they truly believe? Did they truly admit? Did they truly confess? Did they accept Jesus Christ? Because if you do, it will change your life. And if following Jesus hasn't changed your life, you need to ask the question, did I ever truly believe? Most of the times, questions of, did I lose my salvation are, was I ever truly saved in the first place? I'm not talking about walking down the aisle. I'm not talking about getting in the water. I'm not talking about telling your preacher something. I'm not talking about a class that you went through. I'm talking about a belief in Jesus as the only hope that changes the way you live. And if that hasn't happened, then I think you need to ask the question of, is it settled? He doesn't want to leave you in doubt. Once saved, always saved? Yes. But scripture makes it clear that we need to investigate our lives to make sure fruit is being shown, which means we're followers of Jesus. Let's pray together.